look at your hands. Wiggle your fingers. What if this thing, this very weird thing that I'm asking you to do right now, what if that could be used to generate actual electricity? Yes, this week on Download This Show, finger power. Plus, if you use a sneaky, deep fake voice of a dead person in a documentary, is that okay? And we go inside the biggest spyware scandal of the year. Plus, the US president says that social media is killing people. How exactly? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Joining us from Melbourne, we have Josh Taylor, reporter with The Guardian. Welcome back, Josh. Thanks for having me again. And Ray Johnson from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast. Welcome back. Thank you, Mark. Nice to be here. Well, here is a stretchy concept. All three of us are spread across different houses and we're just hoping to God that the the duct tape holds the show together. All right, first up this week, I'm just going to lay it out because it's complicated, right? So there's this new documentary about the very famous chef, Anthony Bourdain, and there's a scene in it where he reads out a note and it's a note that wasn't apparent until after, of course, he passed away a few years ago. And so somebody asked the question, how did you get Anthony Bourdain to read out a note after he had passed away. And, of course, it's emerged that the documentary director has used an AI-generated voiceover. So this is like a deep fake voiceover, but it's words that Anthony Bourdain himself wrote, which makes this whole thing a very weird ethical minefield, right? Like, where do you stand on the usage of a voice in this capacity? Yeah, it is a tricky one, isn't it? Now, the the filmmakers, they didn't tell the audiences that they'd done this, and I think this is part of the key to it. I think we need to be aware that they've used this technology because, like you said, you know, it's being called a deep fake, but it's not technically because it is his own words. And they do say that they've done this with the permission of his estate and his literary agent, but Bourdain's ex-wife, who is the executor of the estate, said that she never actually gave them permission. I found this whole thing fascinating. You know, they they fed over 10 hours of him speaking into this algorithm to be able to produce sentences that he never spoke out loud. And weirdly, I'm actually okay with this technology being used, but under specific circumstances. And I don't think this is it because part of this was reading out a personal email that was never really intended for public consumption if it was from one of his published books and it was actually done with permission, I think it's actually a pretty decent alternative to hiring a voice actor. So if it was an extract from his book and he had a few of them, you would be okay with it? Yeah, I think I would be if if everyone involved, including his estate, said that it was okay because I think they're words that have been put out in the public to be read and I think being able to hear them in his voice I, I think would be really interesting. I don't, I don't know, though. Like, it's, it's a tricky yeah. one. Look, I'd be okay if I passed away and someone wanted to feed hours of my voice into an algorithm to read out stuff that I'd written. I'm fine with that. Like, I'm just going to put this out there. have to listen to all these hours of download this show to get all your thoughts. <laughs> Josh, where do you stand on this? What do you think of this decision to use a, an AI-generated voice for Anthony Bourdain? 
It is one of those hard ones to to judge. I think the way it sounds, you know, even though it was words he he wrote but never said, and you know, the, the private contents of an email that makes it a little bit more problematic. But I think we're just going to have to get to this stage now where people begin to, I don't know, put in their wills or something like that. You know, this is exactly how I want my my voice and my image to be used in the future, and and essentially say I'm okay with my voice being generated in these certain contexts and things like that. I think it's sort of the final frontier in terms of everything that's going on. You know, we're seeing more and more facial deep fakes going on and and the voice is the next component of that obviously the most the most common one we remember is when they got Carrie Fisher in Star Wars and you know everyone was sort of okay with that but you know this is sort of the next step and I've got to wonder how necessary were those words in the film like would it have been different if they'd done something else or or gotten someone else to say it something like that because we have seen instances in the past where you know voice actors, for example, die and then they get replaced by someone who does a voice similar to them and, and no one sort of bats an eyelid at that. But this is sort of the creepy sort of next stage of that, I think. Okay, so let's do the, the hypothetical will for you, Josh. If you were writing your will, what would be your stipulations as to what we can and can't do for your, your voice? Yes, this is a legally binding podcast. Just so you know. <laughs> yeah, there's, my voice recording here will be used against me at some point in the future. Um, I think it would just be essentially I'd only probably want it to speak words that I would naturally say, like completely taken out of context or say something that I wouldn't normally say would just be quite alarming to me. And if it didn't so sound like me at all, down. then it Do wouldn't sound like me. Do not make Josh a Nazi <laughs> posthumously. Got it? Anything else? That and don't good, make yeah. me a hologram. I don't want to be don't a hologram. Don't make you a hologram. Wow, this that is a long list. Weird. Don't make Ray a hologram. Yeah, no, that that whole the whole thing that Kanye did for Kim Kardashian for her birthday, I don't know if either of you have actually seen that mm. episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians, but that stuff was weird and that was everyone so in that room was deeply uncomfortable but had to pretend like it was this lovely gift that he'd given. Please don't ever <laughs> surprise members of my family with a hologram of me saying that I'm proud of them years after I've passed away. That's that's no. So definitely. where do you think it's going to go from here? Like obviously this technology is really in the grand scheme of things in its infancy but it's clearly a market for it. You're seeing it pop up left, right and centre often in places we don't expect. Where do you think... And we're talking about a broad category of technology here. So obviously there's AI voices, there's there's full deep fakes, there's holograms. Where do you think the next stage is? Well, David Attenborough, I, I think, is definitely going to have his voice replicated using AI for future documentaries. I think that that's just absolutely a given, unless he's got something in his will. Uh, but I think we are definitely going to see more of this happening. But what we are going to have to see is disclaimers and audiences being aware of exactly what they're listening to so that they don't have the assumption that these are words that were spoken by people while they were still living. I think you you can't just keep this kind of information from an audience because it creates the kind of backlash that we're seeing now against this film. You know, this might be an amazing film. I I don't know. I haven't seen it. But all I know about it is that AI was used to speak a couple of words that were never spoken out loud. And I think it just takes the emphasis off probably, I'm assuming, what the filmmaker originally intended from the film. Mm. And you, Josh, where do you think the next stage is? Well, I think it, we'll just have to see 
sort of increasing rules around this. I mean, AI is starting to get to the stage where it's getting ahead of us and it's becoming much harder to tell what's real and what's not. I think the disclaimers part is a good start, but we're going to have to see some sort of regulation here. Like, you know, we look at AI across the board from, you know, use in entertainment now to, you know, use in law enforcement and things like that. And there isn't really any sort of properly legislated protection for human rights in a lot of these cases. I think it, it comes back to that sort of line from Jurassic Park about, you know, they're so preoccupied <laughs> when they thought they could, they didn't just stop to think that they should. So I think we need to step back and say, how do we want to see this evolve and what rules should we have in place as a society? All right, download this show is what you're listening to. Our guests this week, Josh Taylor from The Guardian and Ray Johnson from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast. Mark Fennell is my name. We are coming to you from various different states of lockdown. If it sounds a little bit different this week, you're hearing a bit more of my attic than you normally would, but it is still the same show. And it has been called, at least by some, the most powerful piece of spyware ever developed, certainly by a private company. So, Josh, what is Pegasus? So Pegasus is a hacking software that an Israeli company called NSO Group has developed that is capable of infecting you know, billions of phones around the world running either iOS or Android. It has worked through what they call phishing attacks. So you open an email or something and you click on a link and then it sort of infects your phone that way. But most recently, they've discovered that it has been able to infect phones with what they call zero click attack. So that means that they not even clicking on a link, if you open the message, it will infect your phone. And, and the alarming part about this is that it has been able to work on the most recent iPhones, so 11 and 12. And that's despite the fact, you know, Apple talks at length about how good their security is. The fact that it's been able to infiltrate some of these phones is quite alarming. And the data leak that came out this week and, and my colleagues overseas have reported at The Guardian, we've got a list of about 50,000 phone numbers since 2016 that have been selected as, as people of interest by government clients of NSO. So when you say clients, Josh, what exactly are we talking about? So these are essentially just governments around the world. I think the most concerning ones we've seen are Azerbaijan, Bahrain, Hungary, India, Kazakhstan, Mexico, Morocco, Rwanda, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. And a lot of these governments are quite authoritarian and do really crack down on dissidents. So Many, many journalists have been found on these lists, many, many sort of like not-for-profits and, and people who sort of go against government policy have been found on these groups. And one of the people who found on the list was um, the editor of the Financial Times. So yeah, they've, they've kind of gone through a whole bunch of different organizations. And, and this is quite alarming for, for journalists because, you know, their, their phones can be compromised. I know if you want to get an idea of how, how concerning the people who worked on this story were that they essentially didn't talk about this project that they were doing to, to re- release this list anywhere near their mobile phones because they are worried about their own phones being compromised. Wow. So what are the implications for this for, for people who have found their names on these lists, Ray? Is there, is there anything they can do? Is there a sense that it's still operating? Yeah, well, it's difficult to know whether or not Pegasus has actually been installed by your phone until it's been analysed forensically. So you can't just look at it and go, oh, yeah, that's fine. It it needs to be detected professionally. But once this spyware is on your phone, you know, it's collecting your GPS data. It can turn on your phone or your camera, record your calls. It can access your calendar, your, your chats, your contacts, everything, SMS messages, emails, photos, nothing that is in your phone is actually safe at that point. So it is extremely concerning to have spyware this strong 
on the phones of people that it was never intended to be used on as well. You know, NSO tries to say that they only provide this spyware to carefully vetted government intelligence and law enforcement agencies so that they can target criminals and terrorists. But, you know, as Josh has said, it's it's ended up on the phones of all sorts of people. And uh, look, I'd be throwing the whole phone away if I were them and starting fresh with a, with a new number, new phone and removing myself from this system. This might be a really naive question, Josh, but is there any legal recourse to this NSO company, right? Because what in effect they're providing is access to things that the, let's call them victims of this service, have given no real consent to. So, I mean, is it possible that, say, the the editor of the Financial Times can sue NSO? Is that that an option available? I think it would depend on the law of the countries in which they were targeted. I think in Australia, if police were going after journalists here, there might be ways to argue about that. But you've got to remember that a lot of the countries where this is operating, it is the government of that country that is doing this, so therefore it is within the law of those countries. We haven't seen any sort of instances in Australia here yet, but you know the government has passed laws recently here that allow much more access to essentially spy on people's devices in Australia than was previous for. And and similarly, under the auspices of of what they say is sort of terrorism and and all that sort of stuff as the justification. But you know when we look at the instances where the, these powers tend to be used, it tends to be not in that area. So it will depend on the the law in the country in which they're operating. But it, at the moment, it doesn't seem like they are. And then to be fair, NSO is sort of denying that the, sort of this list is um, anything of relevance. And and you know they're putting out the all the sorts of usual <laughs> disclaimers that that you'd expect to come with this. Is NSO distinctive here or are there actually like half a dozen of these services out there, Ray, that that we sort of semi-know about already? Yeah, there are a whole bunch of services out there like this. I, I think this is definitely the most powerful that we're aware of and it's currently the most public that we're aware of. I think it's something that we all definitely need to be aware of and making sure that we're not clicking on any suspicious links in anything. Just don't click on any links ever. Let's just never, (laughs) ever, ever click on a link again, I, I say. I think from the Australian point of view, the problem with a lot of these things is that police and law enforcement in Australia generally don't talk about what technology they're using until it gets revealed in a leak like this. And then we all sort of That's scramble right. to find out something like that. So for example, there's a there's another Israeli company called uh, Celebrite that police in Australia tend to use a lot for basically extracting images of phones when they when they get brought into to the police and that's how they sort of determine what's on the phones and things like that and even finding out about that we only found out through i think it was a customer list that got leaked a while ago so and then they sort of eventually confirmed it and i've seen it referred to in, in court case documents and things like that since then but it's one of those things that i think governments need to be more transparent i mean i know they don't want to go into tools and methodologies but more transparency and understanding about what the risks the public face if they're using devices in general uh, would be would go a long way, I think. All right. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And they're killing people is the very blunt assessment that Joe Biden gave to social media companies not that long ago. They're killing people. So in what way, Ray Johnson, is the Facebooks of the world Killing people, according according to Joe Biden, just in case. Uh, Very uh, hefty lawyers listening to this. <laughs> well, Joe Biden says that Facebook is allowing misinformation about COVID nineteen vaccines to spread online, which is 
absolutely true. So it's one of those instances where it sounds like a really over-the-top statement until you kind of contextualise it. And I don't think it's an entirely unfair comment. I think it's an inflammatory comment. I think it's one that Facebook needs to hear to take things more seriously. Facebook will always come out and say that they're doing a lot to stop the spread of misinformation. But the fact of the matter is there is a lot of misinformation still being spread on Facebook. And this is a tech company with a lot of money that could be employing a lot more human moderators to be working on these platforms to remove information that is leading people to make decisions that is ultimately resulting in them dying. I I don't think it's that much of a stretch. Facebook, of course, have responded Josh, what have they said? Well, they've sort of fallen back on saying that, you know, we've removed 18 million pieces of COVID misinformation. They're directing people to correct sources when they're searching for COVID news. They put warning labels on on misleading content. But ultimately, I mean, the very nature of the way Facebook is designed, the algorithm, and the fact that you're likely to be seeing a lot of this information from people that you know or like family members and things like that means you're going to be seeing it a lot more and you might take it more seriously than, you know, if it's just some random person that you're seeing a lot. You know, it's almost impossible to deny deny what I call is the Facebook brain mentality, which is basically in the last year and a half, we've seen a lot of people who wouldn't normally be susceptible to this sort of conspiracy theories and misinformation just fall down this rabbit hole because they've been at home and they've been on social media a lot more than they previously had been. And it's just, and, and, and it's hard not to blame Facebook for a lot of it because although they have taken some steps, uh, as Ray said, the moderation factor is not there as much as we would like. You know, a lot of the time, at least initially, it's, it's getting a little bit better, I think, in the past couple of months, but at least initially, a lot of the time when this stuff was popping up, you'd have to go report it, like a reporter would have to go report it to Facebook themselves before they take take action on it. And, you know, it, you don't have to look very far to find anti-lockdown groups and, and vaccine misinformation online still very accessible on Facebook. And a lot of this information is being spread in those groups and it is being spread on Facebook pages as well. And that's in response to this, the US Surgeon General, they've said that 12 people on Facebook are producing 65% of the misinformation on the platform. So Sorry, you've got these people. 12 people. I found that a Who really strange people? figure. Well, they're <laughs> public figures with huge followings creating easily shareable content, which is then just being spread around the platform and misappropriated. They're hugely powerful. They could just take them down. It's really not that difficult. I think when you've got these lockdown groups and you've got these private sharing platforms within Facebook as well, you've got these echo chambers of misinformation just bouncing backwards and forwards. You've got people creating you know, confirmation bias arguments and it's impossible to get through to people who have been radicalised, which this is what it is on Facebook with this misinformation when they come to you with it, upset with you that you're not on board with them. And and I think there's a lot of people out there that can relate to that with members of their family that have fallen into this trap. You know, I've been sent videos and messages and memes with no sources from members of my family saying, Ray, you're telling people the wrong thing about the vaccine. You're telling people the wrong Mm -hmm. thing about COVID. This is what it's really all about. And to try and argue with that is almost futile because they've got 
thousands of people in these groups to back up their perspectives on it. Conspiracy theorists aren't alone anymore. They're all together in one place and they're all supporting each other with this information. It's, it's a really tough situation. Just one measure you can use is that prior to being banned from Facebook, the backbench Liberal MP Craig Kelly, or former Liberal now, was frequently one of the most viewed or engaged with politicians in Australia on that on Facebook almost every day. And that was because he was putting a lot of COVID misinformation, uh, alternative treatments and things like that up on his Facebook page. And it was getting a lot of engagement, not just in his electorate, but just across Australia and around the world. He was building up a big audience there for that. And that's, that's sort of basically just how Facebook operates. It operates on engagement. And when you're tapping into that on, on such a negative topic like that, it means that you will get a lot, a lot more popularity. And so it's, it's, having, it's having a lot of side effects. And once you've built that community on Facebook, where it really is easy to build up a community because that's how Facebook works, once you've got that, that big following and Facebook kicks you off and you go elsewhere, you can take them with you. It's, it's literally the way Facebook works that is causing the issues at the moment. They have to have a look at the algorithm and they need to nip these things in the bud before they get out of control. So two things I want to say. One, I guess slight credit where it's due. I do think the fact that if you post anything where they can recognise the word COVID on Instagram, which is, of course, a Facebook-owned platform, they always somehow magically produce a link at the bottom saying, here's some official information. And I do like that. I will say I, I'm, I'm sort of a fan of that. But coming back to Facebook in the main, like what would you need to change, Josh, for the algorithm to still kind of function in the way that Facebook needs it to, but not produce the fellowship of misinformation, which is what I've now dubbed those 12 people. Like what would you need to change about the algorithm so that you could still operate Facebook as we know and, well, love is probably a stretch, while still fixing that problem? It was interesting. I was talking to the um, the head of Reddit the other day about how they were tackling misinformation. And, and although, you know, there is a lot of misinformation on Reddit, the way that the communities there operate is that they've got their own moderators who, who do moderate a lot of this content. And then they've got the user upvoting and downvoting system. And we don't really have a method on Facebook for sort of user verification for a lot of content like this. So they were arguing essentially that misinformation is, is much more is handled much more better within those communities on Facebook because um, you know you have authoritative users who are there upvoting and downvoting. I don't know if that's something that can be translated to Facebook, but maybe a way for getting people to jump in and say no, this is okay, and then and then pushing that content out of you much quicker might have an impact on whether people are seeing it in the first place. All right. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week from various forms of lockdown, Ray Johnson from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast, Josh Taylor from The Guardian, and my name is Mark Fennell, and I promised it at the beginning, and now, my friends, I am delivering finger power. <laughs> there is a wearable <laughs> device that purports to turn the touch of a finger into a source of power, which really does sound like a very low-key Marvel superhero that hasn't had their own spin-off series yet. Ray Johnson, explain <laughs> to me how this, I'm going to call it magic. How does this magic work? 
it is magic. You know, science is just magic that we understand. That's that's how <laughs> I like to think of it. Um, so this is it's it's like a like a band aid almost that wraps around your fingertip, and it's got a padding of carbon foam electrodes that absorb sweat and converts it into electricity because those electrodes they have little enzymes that trigger a chemical reaction between lactate, which is in your sweat, and oxygen molecules also in the sweat. And it generates the electricity, stores it, and then uh, you can use it to power devices when needed. I I think this is incredible. Like we've already got sweat-based energy devices. This already exists, by the way, but they usually need really intense exercise to get going, like running or cycling to have enough sweat to activate any kind of power generation. And this is the first time that we've used fingerprint sweat for this. And I just think it's super cool, uh, but I'm not seeing it going into widespread use in the future, I must say. I love that they've basically managed to turn sweaty palms into a power source. Like somehow, like every time you get an email from MyGov, you're going to be actually generating energy. Like (laughs) seriously, though, like what could you actually use this for, Josh? Like the fact that it's on your hand would suggest there's possibly some usefulness for like wearable technology. Am I am I like way off the mark there? Yeah, I think it probably you know, wristwatches and things like that, you know, there'll probably become a time where we can charge our phones on ourselves at some point because, you know, you constantly need to have a charged phone. I can see that being that probably being the, the best use. I mean, we're constantly at this phase now, you know, we want to get to net zero by 2050. What better way to find renewable energy than on ourselves, I guess? Like what, what's what's more uh, renewable than our own sweat? I was actually surprised to learn that the, one of the most sweaty places in your body is your fingertips because I don't normally associate my fingertips with being sweaty at the gym or something like that. It, it, it was quite alarming to learn. Well, I guess if you, if you get sweaty on your fingers, it's probably the first place that's going to evaporate, right? Which is probably why you don't notice it because it's so out in the opening. Yeah, yeah and exactly. you're touching things with your fingertips all the time. So it's wiping off on everything. Your sweat is just all over everything that you've ever touched. I'd like is to see Is everyone just staring at their fingers right now? Because that's what I'm yeah. doing. Yeah. <laughs> I'd really like to see gloves that incorporate this technology, like self-heating gloves with little tiny heaters in it powered by your sweaty (laughs) fingertips. I think that'd be awesome. Hold on, hold on. How are the heaters being powered? (laughs) (laughs) From the electricity that's being generated from your fingertips that's being stored in little capacitors. And they say perpetual power is not a possibility. (laughs) (laughs) The the wearable finger power source fuels the heater, which makes you sweat, which then fuels the... This is this is breaking yep. my brain. So, Ray, you mentioned that there are other forms of, of wearable technology that does this. Like, what sort of things are being used already? Yeah, there are fitness trackers have been around for ages that use this sweat-based technology. They've been around since, like, 2016. This isn't brand new. It's just sticking them to the fingertips, which is new because it, <laughs> it feels intensely impractical, I must say, but it's very, very effective because in the past all of these sweat energy devices, they, they do need this intense exercise, whereas this one can generate power just while you're sitting there. It's been generating power while people have been asleep sleep. And then the power is just increased when you press things with your fingertips. It's, I I think it's really cool. It's, it's a lot more effective than technology like this in the past. And look, it's, it's likely going to be ending up 
used for exactly the same kind of thing that we've seen in the past. This is clearly like a fitness tracker technology. I've seen people commenting that they're concerned about what it might be used for in the future. And I'm like, I I don't understand where you're going with this, to be honest. (laughs) I think this is an entirely harmless, wholesome technology that we can all get behind, even if it is a bit awkward and uncomfortable. This is a very rare circumstance for Download the Show to have something that's regarded as wholesome and not in some way creepy or destroying humanity, Josh. (laughs) Do you have a dissenting opinion? I think between this and the AI discussion, we're not far away from the battery pods in the Matrix at this stage. Oh, wow. Oh, no. I think we're Uh, fine. I think we're fine. Well, I think that might be all we've got time for on the show this week. Josh Taylor from The Guardian, thank you so much for coming back on Download the Show. Always a pleasure. (laughs) And uh, bringer of wholesome science facts, Ray Johnson from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And with that, I shall leave you. Hey, if you enjoyed the show, it would be wonderful if you head along to whichever podcasting app you happen to be listening to us on. If you are, you might be listening on the radio and leave a review. It's just one of those things, helps other people find the show. Plus, I appreciate it. And with that, I shall leave you. My name's Mark Fennell and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.